um, please, please check in with people. I actually thought there might have been a few more birthdays because, <clears throat> according to Statistics New Zealand, the average life expectancy in New Zealand is 83 years old. So, can you put your hand up if you have made it past 83? All right, let's give them a clap. <laughs> Clearly they're survivors, okay? They've gone past the average life expense. What about people who are getting close, who are in their 70s? Anybody willing to admit that? Yeah, okay, we can clap for you if you want. It's pretty good. <laughs> 60s, anybody in their 60s? And like, yeah, okay, that's good. All right, so well done. You're, you're kind of getting to that average life expectancy. And I don't know if you've noticed, I have. I mean, I'm a wee way away from that. Um, but, but I've noticed even myself as I'm getting older that people tend to become more reflective as their end-of-life approaches. You know, the older they get, they start to, start to evaluate how they've lived, and they ask themselves questions like, have I done anything significant in my life? Have I, have I done anything meaningful? Have I, have I lived a good life? And if you get on the internet, you'll find thousands of blog posts, thousands of YouTube videos of particularly elderly people who look back on their life and they give um, some wisdom that they have gained over the years. They give some life advice, some life lessons that they've learned. And so I just want to introduce you to a couple of elderly ladies. Their names are Betty and Helen, and uh, they are over 100 years old, both of them, and they have some suggestions for what the good life looks like. So we're going to just play a really short video clip. Check it out. Turpan. Helen's your boarding. How old am I? I'm 101. 104. Who said I was 80? So many people think happiness has to be a lot of money. Uh, don't get me wrong. You need money. But don't make money the main thing. It's your attitude. Up all the time. Never mind this down stuff. When I was young, I was a very happy person, and I still am. I just felt good inside. Be yourself and smile. It's so easy to be nice. When people are nice, you're nice. If they're not nice, walk away from them. And just be a good person, physically and Mentally. All those things are important. You have to have beautiful memories that when you're old like me, you can remember. And if that makes you happy, it's a good life. Good job, Betty and Helen. All right. I mean, when you think about it, though, it's Probably not really rocket science. I, I mean, most of that is common sense that they shared. You know, you don't have to chase money as a source of happiness. Um, have a positive attitude. Be nice, Betty said. Smile. Um, look after your physical and mental health. And I love the one that they shared at the end, make beautiful memories. And if I gave you probably a couple of minutes, you could quite easily come up with probably some more insights as you reflected on, on your own life around how to live a good life. 
Do you know in the 20th century there's been a, a number of significant academic studies which have explored how people can live a good life? And the most famous of them is the Harvard Study of Adult Development. So it started back in 1938, and it's been running continuously for over 80 years. It is the longest study of its type. And what happened was um, the researchers have followed uh, 2,000 people from a range of socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, different ethnicities, different geographical locations. And so every two years... They would um, have to interview them, they'd have to go through a whole bunch of questionnaires around their physical health, around their mental and emotional well-being. And over the years, the researchers have tracked these participants and they've seen them just go into a wide range of jobs and, and have a wide range of personal challenges. So some of them have become uh, businessmen, businesswomen, doctors, lawyers. One has been a president of America. Uh, but there's also others who have suffered um, challenges like schizophrenia or alcoholism. So it's just very, very broad. And after 80 years of research, thousands and thousands of hours of data collection and analysis, and thousands and thousands of pages of articles and reports, this is what the researchers have concluded. They've published this conclusion that a good life is built on relationships. And so uh, the lead director at the moment, Dr. Robert Waldinger, this is what he wrote. The people who were happiest, who stayed healthiest as they grew old and who lived the longest were the people who had the warmest connections with other people. In fact, good relationships were the strongest predictor of who was going to be happy and healthy as they grew old. The people who were the most satisfied in their relationships at age 50 were the healthiest at age 80. Now, when you dig into the research, you'll find that they were quite surprised by this discovery, and, and maybe you are too. I mean, they expected that people would have considered that they'd lived a good life if they had made lots of money, or if they'd accomplished a lot in their career, or if they'd you know, maintained their physical fitness. But that wasn't what they found. What they discovered was that the defining factor of living a good life was having quality relationships. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this fascinating that over eight decades, millions and millions of dollars have been spent on this study to discover something that's been known since ancient times. So 3,000 years ago, history records that a guy called Solomon was the ruler of the kingdom of Israel. And he had a reputation as being the wisest man alive at the time, maybe even ever. And he was a good king. During his reign, Israel had a lot of peace and prosperity. But probably the greatest contribution that he left us was his writings. So over his lifetime, he composed around 3,000 proverbs and over 1,000 songs. And he gave us insights into what makes a good life. And when he got to his 80s, the average life expectancy for New Zealand, not back then, but when he got to his 80s, Solomon took a long look at his life, and he realized that he probably didn't have much time left. And so he started to evaluate how he had lived, who he had pursued, what he had valued. And he recorded his reflections in a book which we have in the Bible called Ecclesiastes, which literally means the wisdom of the teacher. And I don't know about you, if you've ever read it, but Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite books because it is just so refreshingly honest. 
I mean, we're basically reading the journal of a man who is questioning if he has lived a good life and trying to figure out what all that means. And so I'm going to tell you what he discovers in the next few minutes, but I do need to give you a spoiler alert, okay, because I will tell you where he lands. But I also would encourage you to read Ecclesiastes this week. There's only 12 short chapters. Uh, you could probably do it in one sitting, like 15, 20 minutes sort of thing. And it's really good because Solomon analyzes his life with such a realness and such a relevance. I mean, it was written 3,000 years ago, but it could have just as easily been posted on Facebook yesterday. It is that fresh and that compelling. So we're going to read together. If you've got a Bible, uh, you can open it or swipe it there or whatever to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And this is how he starts out his reflections. These are the words of the teacher, King David's son, who ruled in Jerusalem. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we're never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we're not content. History merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. We don't remember what happened in the past and in future generations. No one will remember what we are doing now. What a down buzz. That is a very, very bleak way to begin. It's not how most writers would start writing. And Solomon spends the next 11 chapters outlining why he thinks much of life is meaningless. So I'm going to give you a summary of his experiences. In chapter 2, he gives us kind of like the snapshot of why he thinks what he's done and and what he's tried. So flick over to chapter 2. This is what we read. I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. But I found that this too was meaningless. Also tried to find meaning by building huge homes for myself and by planting beautiful vineyards. I made gardens and parks, filling them with all kinds of fruit trees. I built reservoirs to collect the water to irrigate my many flourishing groves. I bought slaves, both men and women, and others were born into my household. I also owned large herds and flocks, more than any of the kings who had lived in Jerusalem before me. I collected great sums of silver and gold, the treasure of many kings and provinces. I hired wonderful singers, both men and women, and had many beautiful concubines. I had everything a man could desire. So I became greater than all who had lived in Jerusalem before me. Anything I wanted, I would take. I denied myself no pleasure. I even found great pleasure in hard work, a reward for all my labors. But as I looked at everything I'd worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anymore. Here's a long list of pursuits, right, that Solomon tried to gain meaning. You see there he's pursuing pleasure, developing property, buildings, vineyards, orchards, conducting business. He's got people working for him. He invested in livestock. He accumulated wealth. He held political power. He had the best of the entertainment. And he, and he worked really hard. But none of that brought him true satisfaction. And the tragedy is that Solomon was one of the few people in human history who literally had it all. He had wisdom, he had power, he had wealth. You see there, he denied himself no pleasure. He had it all. But in his his twilight years, as his life starts to slow down, 
Solomon realizes that everything he has ever tried, everything he's ever tested, everything he's ever tasted is ultimately meaningless. In fact, he calls it a chasing after the wind. Not about you, but I find it a little bit depressing reading that. Actually, what's doubly depressing is is the the fact that a man who, who had it all gets too close to the end of his life and he regrets how he's spent much of his time and energy. And I think Solomon's words were written primarily as a warning for anyone who is looking to gain security or self-worth from things, they'll eventually discover that that is just a chasing of the wind. Now, I probably should clarify that, that doing some of these things here, that, that's not bad. It is good to enjoy pl- the pleasurable things of life. It's good to develop property, good to complete projects, good to help other people with jobs, good to use our wealth well, it's good to be creative and constructive in our work. All that stuff is good, but, but when we pursue things like possessions or power or pleasure as, as an end in themselves, we find that they cannot satisfy the deep longing of our soul. Does anybody recognize this rubber-faced man? Jim Carrey, if you're around in the 90s or the early 2000s, you'll know him as one of the most famous Hollywood actors. He was in blockbuster comedy films, drama films that got him critical acclaim, got him a whole bunch of awards. He was the first actor to be paid $20 million for one film. Man, that's not bad, eh? A few weeks' worth of work, boom, 20 mil. Over his career, he estimated to have earned, just from acting, around $300 million. He's got a two-acre property in Los Angeles. It's worth $30 million. He's got a beachfront mansion in Malibu, which is worth $18 million. He's got an apartment in New York. But he is also far more than just a very wealthy actor. He's actually a published children's author. He's uh, an accomplished visual artist. He's got an honorary PhD. And he's also had his portrait on a Canadian postage stamp. He is, this guy has got it all right. On 2005, at the heights uh, of his fame and influence, this is what he said in an interview. He said, I think everyone should get rich and famous and have everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that is not the answer. Maybe Jim Carrey had been reading Ecclesiastes. I don't know. But the good news is that Solomon's wisdom is not simply a warning. After 12 chapters of reviewing his life, Solomon lands at a final conclusion about how to live a good life. This is what he says. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. This is the second last line in Solomon's book. And it has is definitive statement. After reflecting, after reviewing, he argues that everyone's true purpose is to live in relationship with God. Now, let me just clarify what that relationship looks like, because he's got a word there which is possibly a little bit confusing. He writes there that we should fear God, but definitely doesn't mean that in the, in the modern sense. <clears throat> Solomon's not saying that we should be cowering in the corner, feeling anxious and apprehensive that God's always angry at us. What he means is that God is not someone to be scared of, but he is someone to be respected and honored. And so when Solomon understands that fear in God, he means that we should recognize God's power and his authority. And I wonder if that's how most people 
You think about how most people view a, a policeman or a surgeon, right? They realise that the police are there to correct your bad behaviour or a surgeon is there to inflict pain because he has to repair, uh, repair some damage. I mean, ultimately, their actions, as difficult, as challenging as they are, they're going to be for our own benefit. They're using their power and their authority for a greater good. And so when we have that appreciation of God, when we respect his authority, when we honour his sovereignty, it makes it so much easier to have a relationship with him. God wants to get to know his people. And if you look through the record of human history, he walked with the first people in the Garden of Eden. He protected Noah and his family from that devastating flood. He guided Abraham and his family into a distant land. He rescued the Israelite people from slavery in Egypt, and he sent his one and only son to dwell among us. And so if there's one lesson that Solomon's learned in his life, it is that a relationship with God is built on a foundation of respect and honour a healthy fear for God's power, appreciating his goodness and his grace. But that doesn't always happen in isolation. A relationship with God doesn't mean that you have to become a monk or a nun and just totally live in a, a separate, segregated life away from everybody and everything. In fact, if you know anything about life on this planet, you'll know that we have to interact with people. Yes, you can get some food delivered to your door. You can get shopping delivered to your door, but you still have to interact with some people in this modern world. And so what Solomon's getting at is that he says that a good life is shaped by being in relationship with God and obeying God's commands. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know that, particularly the Old Testament, there is a lot of commands, a lot of God's directives for life. In fact, the Jewish rabbis uh, counted over 600 commands from God just in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible. And I want to tell you this, that 90% of those commands are focused on interpersonal relationships, how people interact with each other. And so down through the centuries, thinkers have tried to distill those 600 commands into something a little bit more manageable. So King David, Solomon's father, he condensed those 600 commands down to 11 principles in Psalm 15. You can read them there, but all of them are about people interacting with other people. Or the prophet Isaiah, he reduced those 600 commands down to six principles. And again, these are about how people interact with each other. The prophet Micah, he compressed the commands down even further from 600, from 11, from 6, down to 3. And this is what he said about how we can obey God's commands. And they're all about how we interact with each other. Jesus echoed the words of Solomon a thousand years earlier. And this is what he said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the prophets are based on these two commands. So the words are slightly different, perhaps maybe even a little bit clearer, but the emphasis is the same as Solomon's, that to live a good life is to love God and to love others, to, to fear God and to obey his commands. So that sounds pretty good, right? You think you could probably, probably want to do that, but how? Let me suggest that the best way to think about this is how you use your time. So everybody has 24 hours in a day. It doesn't matter how rich or poor you are. 
everybody has 24 hours in a day. And you may or may not agree with this, but most people are supposed to sleep between seven and eight hours. Some are more, some are definitely less. Okay, so let's just average it out as seven and a half hours. Most people sleep, okay? Which leaves you 16 and a half hours of the rest of the day, okay? Because you're not sleeping. Now, 16 and a half hours in minutes is pretty much... 1,000 minutes. Okay, is, it, is everybody tracking with the math so far? Okay, good. <laughs> I'm not great with math, and I could have made a mistake. So, 1,000 minutes. Now, I'm going to suggest a helpful way for you to think about those 1,000 minutes, because 1,000 is quite a big number. What if you thought about it as 100 blocks of 10 minutes? Okay, break it down. So, every morning when you wake up, you have 100 blocks of 10 minutes. And as you track through the day, you spend those 10 minutes as you live your life, uh, those blocks of 10 minutes, and eventually you run out of the blocks and you have to go back to sleep and do it all again the next day, okay? This is very, <laughs> very basic science, right? I would suggest to all of us to think about how we use those 100 blocks each day. And, and I know that you are not average people, okay? But you're exceptional people. But there are, have been a lot of studies done on how the average person spends their day. And um, I think you'll find some similarities between some of your life and some of the, this. So I'm going to put it up on the screen. Oh, yeah. Think about it as blocks. And here are... My blocks, all right? Lego blocks. So, this is how the average person spends their day. I really hope this makes sense. Most people, if you have a job, go to work, right? And that's going to be the biggest block, okay? If you're working for eight hours a day, that's how it is. That's 48 blocks of 10 minutes. Make sense? So, I'm just going to fill up 48 blocks to show you what it's like. This is the hardest one. This is the most. All right, 48 blocks of blue. Rats. Not that blue. Getting there? Now, if you'd gone to school, you wouldn't have to quite do 48, hour, 48 blocks. You'd only do six hours, which is 36 blocks, I think. So slightly less, but... We ran out of Lego colours, so I'm not chucking in. I'm not chucking in. That's 48 blocks. 48. All right, 48 blocks. Now the next thing that people do is uh, preparing and eating food. So that is uh, nine blocks. Okay, one and a half hours. Quite a long time, but I suppose you know some people work really hard on their food, not just two-minute noodles. All right, next thing, hygiene. So that is six blocks, or one hour. Now you'll note there I've got grooming, so some people take a little bit longer to do their hair than others. Um, cleaning is the next one, only three blocks or 30 minutes. What? That's the house. If you do 30 minutes a day of cleaning, that's quite a lot of cleaning, isn't it? Okay, right, okay, okay. This must be a guy, the average guy. Okay, right, well, 
I didn't realise there'd be laughter when I said, th- I thought 30 minutes cleaning was quite a lot, but obviously not. Okay. Okay. All right, what's next? Shopping. Okay, 30 minutes. Is there going to be laughter on shopping? Is that undercooked as well? Oh no, if this is the guy, probably only three minutes shopping. All right, exercise and sports, 40 minutes. Some of you are like, <laughs> not that long. Uh, traveling, commuting, uh, we've got 30 minutes for that one, okay. Three blocks. Entertainment, two hours 20. Now, entertainment is things like TV, movies, uh, reading, social media. Okay? It's quite a lot. I know it's quite a lot, but that's what the, that's what the statistics say. Odd jobs around the house. Uh, mowing the lawns, gardening. Not sure if you classify that as cleaning or not, but... Okay, uh, communications. <clears throat> so that's things like um, email, Facebook. Oh, not Facebook, sorry, phone calls. That's just sort of general, not work-related stuff. 20 minutes for that. Uh, Socialising, 30 minutes, time starved, and then religious practices, 20 minutes. And that's your blocks, used up. Now, I don't know whether that's helpful or not, but I wonder if, if you want to live a good life, if you're trying to figure out how to, how to fear God and keep his commands, then breaking down your day into 100 10-minute blocks could be quite helpful. And again, average person there. But when you look at that, I guess the questions start to rise. I mean, how many blocks are you using where you're creating something or whether you're consuming something? How many blocks are you spending on purposeful projects or you're really just doing pointless activity? How many blocks are you doing where you're fearing God and obeying his commands or where you're loving God and, and loving other people? Now, I'm not, not trying to make you feel guilty at all. I just think it's a useful way to consider how we, how we use our time, what we do with our lives on a daily basis. Because I desperately, desperately don't want you to be like Solomon and get to your 80s and look back on a lifetime of chasing the wind. So regardless of whether you are in your 20s or your 30s or your 40s or your 50s, 60s, 70s, or even if you're 80s, I want you to live a good life. I want you to make the most of the time that God has given you. I want you to fear him and respect him and honor him and obey his commands and love his people. And So today, can I just encourage you to build your life on the goodness of God? Put your time into cultivating quality relationships with God and with other people. And if you do that, you'll live a good life. Let's pray together. God, we just uh, humble ourselves before you. We want to honour you, respect you for all that you do in our lives. And we want to make the most of the time that you've given us. We have a healthy fear for you and we want to obey your commands and just live the way that you would call us to. And, and so we just ask that you would help us deepen our relationship with you and strengthen our relationships with other people so that we can live a good life, a life of meaning, a life of purpose, a life that brings glory to you. In your name we pray. Amen.